Come with me as we dive into some of the most intimate diaries a person could share. My mission is to inspire you to push through during the toughest of times, too. Thank you for being here. This is Push Diaries Podcast, and I'm your host, Tess. Well, hi there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Teresa Noel Fall here visiting you from, oh, someplace in Wisconsin. I'm taking my first adventure with Concrete Billy Boy. Is that what they call you there, Bill? No, I, I like to be called Blacktop Billy. Oh, Blacktop Billy, excuse me. So Blacktop Billy gave birth to Tessie in 1989. But he didn't give birth to me. His wife did. So, everybody, this is my dad, Bill. He's on the podcast today. And we are driving cross-country. And why is that, Bill Full? Well, I uh, am actually doing my job, and it was convenient because um, I was able to swing through and pick up my daughter from her home, and I'm delivering her to my home. And so uh, it's been fun for the last seven hours or so. We've been riding together, and I have listened to some of Tessa's podcasts before, but we were talking a lot about her podcasting um, baptism, so to speak. And it's been fun to see it start to evolve. Um, So anyway, my job, I'm a retired individual who luckily fell upon a job that was um, near and dear to my heart. I was at a gas station in uh, Winona, Minnesota, and I ran into a person who was delivering Winona canoes. A lot of canoes and kayaks on this rig that's about as long as the semi. So there it is, all decked out in beautiful pastel colors, wrappings, truck all loaded to the gills. And I had a smart question. I walked up to him, he was standing next to the truck, and on the side of the truck it says Winona Canoe. So I asked him, I said, do you deliver for Winona Canoe? <laughs> it's like, duh. Yeah. That's so funny, though. That's so great. Like, who'd have thunk that you would have ran into somebody at a gas station and get your job after retirement? Yeah, so that's unique in and of itself. But the thing that um, has been a big part of my life throughout my adult life is canoeing and camping and being in northern Minnesota, and I've known about Winona Canoes forever. Um, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, northern Minnesota had this has this wonderful area that they share with Canada called the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, and, and then just north of Minnesota, there's the um, Quetico Provincial Park or the Quetico Wilderness Area. So we're talking about 2 million acres of remote wilderness that you can only really traverse by canoe. So most of my adult life has been spent canoeing. I was a canoe guide for two years, two summers I should say, and uh, I've taken my family with on a number of trips. Tess in particular has gone with me a few times, so it's been a real fun uh, pastime for me uh, throughout my adult life. Yes, yes. Now, Bill Full. Just since we're talking about it, how do you feel about the Boundary Waters? Well, basically, the big issue up there is, um, well, fracking's a big issue in Winona. But the big um, 
thing yes. going on. Thing, big thing going on right now up there is the idea of oh, yeah. establishing a copper copper sulfide mine. Oh. And uh, it's not going to be specifically in the Boundary Waters, but so close that if there's any kind of, and there probably will be, any kind of um, discharge or um, a sad environmental event, it could really be terribly uh, a terrible dilemma for that area because of the pollutants. And the Boundary Waters is unique because it's um, granite substrate, which means it doesn't really absorb water as much as other places, but it sheds it. So any kind of leak or spill or pollution that gets put in one area will immediately spread yeah. to other areas. And that whole watershed empties into Lake Superior and also up into the Hudson Bay area. So we're talking about, you know, millions of miles that could be uh, severely, Im yeah, yeah, affected or severely impacted by that. So... Anyway, getting back to my job with Winona, it was just kind of fun to see this guy at the gas station, and uh, I had been busy working. Um, I was grubby. I had shorts on that were stained and tattered and work boots, and I was probably smudged. My hair was a mess. I was wearing a ball cap and a ratty T-shirt, and I asked the guy, you know, if he was at work for Winona Canoe, and he goes, yeah, and I said, oh, boy. And he said, well, you should stop in and talk to Jeff. The delivery guy, supervisor, the logistics man at Winona Canoe. And he says, I think we're looking to hire somebody. So 10 minutes later, I was in the offices of Winona Canoe looking like a rag. And I asked the receptionist, I said, you know, I've never applied for a job looking like this. But I'm wondering if I could talk to Jeff. And long story short, after he photographed or photocopied my driver's license, I was basically hired. And about three weeks later, I was driving a big truck, uh, a big pickup truck. It's got six wheels, so there's dualies on the back, and a long, large trailer, which you could see in a picture once Tess gets it on her website. I'm about as long as a semi, so I basically um, have to treat my rig and my driving like a semi. That's what she said. Now that's kind of inappropriate, Tess. <laughs> You think okay. I raised my daughter better than that? All right. I'm going to leave that extraordinarily long pause in there. That was fun. So anyway, um, yeah, so I've been doing this now for, it's this is my fourth year. It's been a lot of fun. I travel all over the United States. I've been to all but four states. Yeah, you're right. I haven't been to Alaska. That'd be a tough drive. I haven't been to New Mexico, Arizona, and Alaska. I could have gone to New Mexico and Arizona on my way to California once, but I chose to go through Nevada and Utah. And surprise of surprises, it looks like I'm slated to drive all the way to Alaska yet this year. So that'll be kind of a fun, long trip for me. Oh, yeah. I, You know, one of my favorite childhood trips were when you and Mom took us on a cruise from Bellingham, Washington to, to um, we were going to go up the end of Ketchikan, Alaska. That's right. Yeah, that was such a great trip. I remember the starfish were like right up on the coast. And what kind of rock would have been in the Alaska waters there in Ketchikan? What were those rocks? Or was it just sand? It was a combination. Yeah. But there was a lot of, because we were right on the ocean, and the tidal, the 
Yeah, so we basically, yep, we basically, uh, the tidal area, we were walking around a lot when the tide was out. So the rocks were covered with um, some sort of sea vegetation, and that was really kind of fun. And we saw these critters, the starfish, like you say. So that was a, that was a fun trip, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I hope none of those starfish got beached and then couldn't find their way back in. Yeah, I bet they have a way of adapting to that kind of environment. They probably just... Crawl back in. Yeah, or close up all their orifices and keep the water from evaporating or drying out, whatever. I bet they do fine. Yeah. That was a neat trip, and I remember Micah and I ripped leaves off the trees there, and Micah made hats and mud flaps and binoculars and what do you call the long stick that is a single eye? Uh, telescope. Yeah, he made a telescope. It was just fun. Yeah, that was fun. I remember the salmon running in that time, so we had to yes. eat fresh salmon and Micah catching some. And <clears throat> yeah, and you had Micah and I beating the fish over the head to put them out of their misery. Yeah. I felt a little crazy doing that with all the tourists walking by, and here we are, two kids, just pounding salmon's heads in so that they're not suffering. I mean, well, I don't know how many. we did what we had to do. That's right, to survive. I think it was... We didn't keep more than two, I think, just to feed our family that night. Yeah, are you sure? I thought we kept more than that. I don't know. I just Well, we gave a couple away, too, didn't we? I don't remember that at all. I just remember us keeping two and then camping that night, and we talked about, you know, setting up tents, and Linnea was not going to sleep in a tent. She didn't want to. I don't well, remember where, why. Well, where the heck was Linnea planning on sleeping? She slept in the car, huh? the rental car we had. So she knew, you all knew she was going to sleep in the car before you got there. I don't know if that's the case, but she slept in the car. You and Micah shared a tent, and Mom and I set our tent up, and it was kind of funny because I thought we were safe enough, and halfway through the night, Gwen goes, <gasps> like that, like something, and I thought maybe there's a bear outside, so I woke up and I heard the sound of gurgling water. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Do you remember that? Yes, but weren't yeah. the kids tied further back? Oh, yeah. You were far away, and so I unzipped the tent and looked out, and the ocean was right there. We right had, up next to your wife's yep, body. Yep, we were, our tent was in the ocean, more or less, by that time. So we were, were you guys wet, or was the tarp kind of preventing? Yeah, we were we were sloped enough so that we were able to stay dry. Bubble up, yeah. So I just, uh, luckily it was one of those self-supporting tents, so I uh, walked through the water, the I walked through the ocean with our tent and our sleeping bags and moved ourselves up close to where you guys were, and just something funny. I wound up sleeping in the ocean. Yeah, so then did you guys just get back in the tent and go right back to bed, or? I think so. It was pretty easy to fall back asleep after we laughed about it a little bit, but yeah. So, anyway, camping's been a big part of my life, and so uh, for four years now I've been doing this delivery gig. So it's it's been a, a fun thing for, for me to get out and see a lot of the country, and granted, like what we're doing now, we're actually driving down the road, heading home through Wisconsin, as Tess said, and uh, a lot of the driving is on freeways, so a lot of it's kind of boring, so to speak, so I have to really be aware of how I can stay alert and focused. And uh, How do you stay alert and focused? Well, this trip, I, I have you with me, which has kept me very awake. I'm not a big coffee drinker, so, uh, you know, I rely on caffeine in the morning to get me going, and every once in a while I'll have a cup of coffee in the middle of the day, but um, I feel if I have to get coffee to stay awake, then that's not really good. 
So there are times I'll pull over and take a little cat nap or just rest or get out and walk around. But uh, I haven't been in a situation where I felt so terribly sleepy that I was at risk. One time I, well, I've been a few times where I felt kind of snoozy and I just pull over and take a little cat nap and that helps. So Yeah, that's but, good. You listen to that. Yeah, but, you know, listening to radio is not the easiest thing because you turn on a radio, you catch a good station, and then within a few miles or minutes, the station fades from your... Yeah. Initially, some of the trucks that we that I drive through in Ona Canoe had the Sirius XM radio in there, which was really nice because I could listen to different things and different stations. I like listening to sports. I like to listen to hockey and, and football. So I remember listening to a really important Minnesota Vikings football game when I was all the way out in Cleveland, Ohio. And then uh, I listened to a hockey game, a couple of hockey games once, courtesy of the Sirius radio. But we don't pay for that for the whole time. We just let the uh, trial period run out, and then we don't renew. So, yeah, the big thing I do, Tess, is I, uh, I like to bring along books on tape. And now that you've got me going on these podcasts, I'll probably download podcasts on my um, tablet and then listen to those as I travel down the road. That's awesome. I think you're really going to enjoy these podcast shows. Um, I think now would be a fun time to just real quick talk about a couple shows that we've heard of. Have you heard of any podcasts that you enjoy listening to? No, I haven't. I really have not um, been privy to podcasts. That's kind of an area, an area of my life where I need to explore more of because I know there's a lot of great content out Yeah, I know uh, really, really few common ones like Freakonomics Radio, NPR has like a classical station where, I mean, that's music, I know that's not a podcast, but they do like the Tiny Desk concerts and NPR will put those out in podcast format so you can download them for free and listen to them later. Criminal is a really good one. I think you've listened to some Criminal, Dad. You and I might have listened to one like going up north to the reunion or something like that, but I can show you those more. And then Tyler really likes the Joe Rogan podcasts. Have you heard of Joe Rogan? He's the guy who used to do Fear Factor, and he was like the ref in Ultimate Fighting. But anyway, he talks about all different kinds of things, and his podcasts are like three hours long an episode. Well, now that you mention it, I know that they're... You know, National Public Radio has some podcasts like the Ted Radio Hour and, and Moth. You know, those stories would be fun to listen to. So there's a lot of potential out there. I just haven't tapped into it because I do download books. So my big pastime as I'm driving is not listening to the radio so much as listening to books. Yeah. I would say books on tape, but it's more electronically digital books. Yeah, that's great, though. Yeah. Because, yeah, you, like you said, radio stations fade, and then what do you do? Yeah. So what kinds of books do you like? It's hard for me to listen to self-help books. and It's like, you know, distracted driving is an important issue with people driving today. But I actually like to be distracted mentally to some degree by listening to fictional books, you know, yeah. things where people get, you know, murdered and they got to find out who does it. All right, well, what? give a couple to the listeners. Some people might want a good, entertaining story. Well, yeah, there's um, there's a bunch of them that I've enjoyed. Harry Bosch series, and I can't remember the author there. Those are those are fun, and of course they're sequential, but you don't have to listen to them in sequence. Those have been nice. Different authors that I've just heard from other people say I've picked up them. John well, John Sanford, the author out of Minnesota, has gotten some traction in my listening ear because he's got two characters that I really enjoy. So he's got two strings of books that enjoy, that involve uh, main characters that uh, I'm up to date with them. 
And uh, so those are just a few. Yeah, but I, I like Stephen listening to Stephen King is good. Stephen King has been doing a lot of books. Yeah, I've, I've read some of his, and some I like, and some are some are good. Um, some it's kind of hard to wrap my brain around sometimes. But yeah, that's another author I listen to it from time to time. All right, well, here's the part where we can keep going, or we could stop for a minute. Probably tell a, a Lena and... Sven joke or whatever the heck his name is. Your whole, you know, Push Diaries podcast deal with people that have been pushing through, you know, adversarial situations or or situations that get dumped on them and they have to kind of try and, you know, push their way through it or find their way through it as best they can. And, you know, you certainly have shared a lot of what you've gone through as kind of like the first person in the novel. But the third persons are, you know, the people that have lived with you for a long time and love you and care about you and yes. have relationships with you. And, and I don't know if, if, if one gets to hear or find out much about the, I don't want to say background people, but let's use that phrase. Caregivers. Caregivers, background people that, you know, have to accompany somebody who's lived through something that's been terribly tragic. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of like what I'd like to share today is, you know, my perspective and what I've lived through, seeing you go through what you've gone through. So, so that's what I was thinking. That'd be kind of fun to share that. Yeah, give a little voice to those people. What was it like from the beginning throughout the middle to the end? I mean, can you put that in a few words? What it was like to be the husband of a woman who was caregiving for her daughter and what it was like to be a father of a woman who was close to dying? And I mean, what was that like? The answer is no. I cannot put it in a few words, but I can ramble on for a while and see where it takes us. But because uh, it's so much more involved than just a few words, I'm sure you know that. So maybe to spin a good story, let's start with the setting. And the setting, of course, is we're uh, a happy family living in Minnesota. And I think Tess told you that she graduated from Cannon Falls High School. So my wife, Gwen, was a nurse in the Cannon Falls medical system. And I was a teacher in Red Wing, Minnesota. So there's about 18 miles between where I worked and Cannon Falls. We first moved to the area. I was a teacher. Gwen wound up getting a job in Cannon Falls, and we basically proceeded to raise our children there. And we found a house in Cannon Falls, moved in there, beautiful house. After a number of years there, and Tess was getting old enough, and we thought it would be really nice to move to the country. So we found a hobby farm and uh, on 10 acres halfway between Cannon Falls and Red Wing. It was sort of by design, but I think we would have been fine finding a hobby farm anywhere. I didn't mind the drive um, that I had from Cannon Falls. But we were lucky enough to be halfway, so we would both commute to work. Gwen would go west to Cannon Falls, and I would go east to Red Wing, and Tess would go toward Cannon Falls, and so she'd drive that way. So our family progressed. Um, My oldest daughter, Linnea, wound up getting a degree and graduating, and Micah struggled a little bit with what his niche was in life. So, um, anyway, he wound up dropping out of high school. He wound up going back and getting his GED. Um, So that's kind of like where our path led up until Tess graduated from college and was starting her first real professional job up in northwestern Minnesota. Want to talk about that? Now I'm interviewing you. Yeah, I uh, applied for a job. You're talking about... At Knute Nelson. Yeah, my hospice job. I applied I applied for a social work job at Knute Nelson. I had minored 
when I went to St. Cloud State for social work, I had minored in gerontology. So I um, really wanted to work somewhere with the aging population. I didn't really know exactly how, but uh, one reason why I've always felt so inspired by elderly people is just the experience that they've had, the things that they've learned, the wisdom that they so graciously share with all of us um, about life's lessons because, you know, for those of us that have lived through enough things, we realize that a lot of lessons come with the trials that life brings. So I just always, as a kid, loved to be around older adults. And so I was really excited about doing something with the older community. And, you know, one thing I think, too, is I was so close with my grandparents on both sides. I really loved them. And, you know, my parents visited with them often, so I got to see them a lot. And we all got to spend a lot of time together when we were kids, so I really, yeah, so I got a job in in hospice as a hospice social worker up at Canute Nelson. They were just starting a new group of professionals to make up this hospice division. I got along great with the main manager and supervisor of the new group, and I had an interview with him and the highest up president lady at Knut Nelson. Administrator. Administrator. She was, yeah. So there, I had I had a very, you know, intimidating interview. I I knew that Knut Nelson was a very successful independent, li- independent living, assisted living, nursing home. Did you know that, Dad? They even had a rehab center. So I was very excited to get that job. I was very proud of myself, and now you can explain what happened after that. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if Tess covered this in other podcasts, but three months into her job, or probably before that, she started experiencing back pain, and, you know, I'm just kind of a, kind of a person where I've always believed that things will work out well in the end. Uh, I was a person that had a strong faith in church life and, and those kind of things, and when Tess called, she talked to Gwen, my wife, being a nurse, and was trying to find out how to get past this back pain she was continually having for for seemingly like forever, and it got worse and worse and worse, and again, I just thought it was probably because she just moved, lifting heavy boxes. I didn't have a mattress yet, remember? Uh, yeah, you gave yeah. me an air mattress. That's right. You were having all sorts of things that could easily explain why you're having back pain. Um, so I just, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And But you encouraged me to keep at it, take care of yourself, and yeah. be in touch. But we, I had no idea either, and I think it just kept on and on, and finally we were all wondering, what the heck? Well, see, that's, you've given me too much credit. I just, again, my, my mindset, because... I've always been fairly lucky in life, and I've never really had to face any terrible adversity. Or disease. Yeah, or any big medical issues or anything like that. The worst thing I ever had was I broke my wrist. I didn't... How did you break your wrist? Um, I walked off a shed. <laughs> Why did you walk just, off a shed? I climbed up the ladder, and my 
neighborhood friend was saying, I think that's a UFO. And I climbed up the ladder, started walking, and I was so engrossed in looking at that light in the sky. Oh, my God. I walked right off the shed. Yeah, I'm like, I didn't know that it was because you were looking for a UFO. Yep, yep, exactly. Oh, I'm not the brightest bulb in the tree. Most people would stop walking when they're up on the roof. Not me. I walked right off. So anyway, um, that's how I broke my wrist. And uh, Did you see it at UFO? I don't remember. I just remember going home and being in intense pain and crying to my mommy saying I was in fifth grade. So anyway, um, so I just, I didn't really take it seriously, but you remember how Gwen would talk to you on the phone and she finally came up to see you and then you went to the, you know, infamous. Well, just a minute now. What did mom say to you where you were like, whoa, Gwen's really concerned about Tess? No, I, I, I never really got to that point. Oh, you didn't? No. Well, well, were you surprised that she was coming up? I just figured that she was going to go up there. And like I say, I thought everything would work out okay. To the, you know, that she'd go up there and she'd find out it was something simple. She'd and, handle it, yeah. She was very capable. Yeah. She was hers. Or, yeah, she'd figure it out and then everything would be hunky-dory. And, of yeah. course, no well, big. Yeah, we know what happened, how the MRI discovered this. No, we don't. You can share all of it. Well, yeah. No, I mean, Dad, just don't feel like you have to say, like, you guys might already know this. They actually don't. I've never gone through all this. Oh, okay, well. And you're more than welcome to share any of it. Well, then maybe the best person to share it would be you. No, I want to hear it from you. Well, you you paint it first, and then I'll add my perspective later. Oh, we're arguing on the microphone. Okay. I just want you to keep going. We're talking about caregivers. Yeah. All right, so... So you didn't really realize no. anything. So Gwen, because she had days off, and she, uh, during the week or whatever, I was still teaching in Red Wing, and so she made a trip up there all by herself to uh, check in on you. and Which is like a what, two-hour drive? Oh, no, it was more like Oh, it was, it three. was like... Four, yeah. Three and a half or four hours. Alexander is another hour and a half past St. Cloud. Yeah, so it was three and a half hours. Anyway, she goes up there and, and these are sharing with her some of the things, how you passed out when you're swimming and, and then she thought that something more serious was happening than just standard backache. So I don't know what happened first, if you were coming down the stairs with a load of things or that you had gone to the MRI first. What happened first, Tess? I was getting, uh, we were going, oh gosh, I think I had had my MRI already and we had gone back home to get a change of clothes because we were headed back to Knut Nelson's pool area. They had opened up a new spa and we had like two brand new certified massage therapists right at my work. So I had made a massage appointment for mom and I. I knew that we weren't going to get results until Monday, so I had made an appointment. So Mom and I, after my MRI, went back to my apartment, got a duffel bag, and we, you know, tootled out of the apartment to go to the car with our duffel bags to go to our massages, and I fell down the stairs. I told my foot to pick up pick itself up to take a step down and my you know your brain tells your foot to walk I mean you just walk it doesn't take much thought after that I mean it was clear that my lower half was not responding to my brain I mean as as much as you pull a light cord out of an outlet your light turns off 
And that was what it was like. I mean, my legs were just not responding. So, you know, it became more common ever since I fell that moment. I had been really weak up, up to that point. You know, I felt like I really needed to focus on my ankles and my knees and my hips, you know, just being balanced and flexing and taking my time and making sure I was responding. I just started to realize, like, okay, when I'm on stairs and when I'm walking, I need to be so careful. And you're right, Dad, in one, in one week's time then after that MRI, I went from walking to needing a walker to needing a wheelchair. Yeah, it happened. It happened so fast, and if I could push the rewind button a lot, it was kind of, I remember real poignant that was when you had gone to the MRI technician, and he was the one that was supposed to be to basically take your picture, and uh, he was kind of like pretty talkative and jovial, and then uh, something to the effect that he got pretty sober real quick and serious, and he said, we better expand this. MRI a little bit, so they took a more expansive view of your back, and, and then his whole demeanor changed, and of course, Mom read that right away, and she knew something, something more sinister was going on. Yeah, do you remember that they also ordered me physical therapy appointments, and it was not helping my body get stronger? They right. swore up and down. You're right, that doctor was jovial, just said, oh, you're a young lady, you're very healthy, you're just... Your core is probably just weak. We just need to work on your abs. So he ordered me like two to three uh, physical therapy appointments a week covered by insurance. I mean, I think my copay for like my 10 to 20 appointments was like $500, which is really cheap when you're getting specialized physical therapy. And, you know, I had a good job. I was making a good amount of money, so... It was worth it to me. I just wanted to get better, and I knew that I needed to invest that money into it. And my physical therapist dad mailed me my checks back, a total of $500, when, when he couldn't help me and had to send me back to my doctor for further tests, which is what mom came up for. Yeah, so when that picture taker MRI guy came in, yeah, he took the pictures, and he... He knew something was wrong, but he couldn't say anything because that's not his specialty. He's not allowed to discuss it with the patient. Right, but he knew darn well something bad was going on in your back. So He took a bigger picture. Yep, and then you had to wait until over the weekend to have it read. And then you fell down the stairs. And the other interesting little part, pushing the rewind button again, is how I remember you saying, and it made me cry at the time, how you, know, you fell on your face more or less. Took a nosedive off of three steps up of the stairs. You're almost to the bottom. So you're laying face down on this cementy, gravelly, rocky pavement area. And Mom just got right down next to you and laid on the ground and started face-to-face right there with you on the ground saying, we'll get through this. Yeah, she laid flat on the ground. She She was not on her knees. She was not laying on her knees. She was... Toes, ankles, knees, hips, chest, shoulders, arms, face, against the gravel with me. I mean, she just completely collapsed next to me and looked me dead in the eyes and said, We're going to get through this, honey. We're going to get through this. Just just relax. She said, just lay here and don't move. Yep. 
and she knew something was in your backbone. Something was not right there, so. Yeah, she told me that to move. I think we were both afraid. Like, had, had I not been carrying that duffel bag, she and I both thought I would have been more scraped up because it really did block my impact. Huh. That's good. It wasn't your ample bosom that stopped the fall? Well, boy, it sure was ample at one time. <laughs> no comment. Yeah, no comment. Dads aren't supposed to talk about their daughter's bosoms. Well, wait, are you talking about my boobs or my buttocks? No, I'm my talking boobs. bosoms or breasts. Oh, well, I did have, I mean, they, let's be honest, they weren't real large. So anyway, you had a duffel bag. Something Becca and I might call mosquito bites. Okay, well, anyway, we're talking about their duffel bag duffel working bags. Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about Patreon. Patreon gives creators of all kinds the tools needed to acquire, manage, and energize their paying patrons. Support Push Diaries by subscribing to our Patreon page where you'll get exclusive content not found anywhere else. We just started a special series where me and my fiance Tyler talk about life and how we push forward together. Just go to patreon.com create a profile, and become a patron of Push Diaries Podcast and thousands of others. Thanks, and we'll talk again soon. I'm so proud to have been associated with people that are in the service industry. And let me throw a little commercial plug in here in the midst of this COVID virus thing. You know, I'm so blessed that my daughter, Linnea, is teaching, helping um, struggling young people. Uh, my son-in-law is a teacher, too, teaching middle school science. My son, Micah, who got his GED and then went on to get his degree in social work, is working as a social worker in Winona, Minnesota. And, of course, my daughter, Tess, is a social worker. And so, you know, these service-minded people, and my wife being a nurse, I just think what we don't really appreciate is the level of care and compassion nurses and social workers and teachers have for people. They truly are people lovers. And what the nurses and other people are doing nowadays in the midst of this COVID virus is where they put themselves at risk. and Yeah put their families at risk just to help humanity. I just am, I'm so proud to be part of part of that group and I'm so appreciative and maybe amazed at uh, the courage that these folks have. Yeah, so. I totally agree. I'm really glad you gave a shout out. Shout out. Yeah. In fact, Dad, did you know um, that Kayla from Cannon Falls, Minnesota, she um, graduated in the same grade as my dear good friend Brady's little sister did, Mackenzie. So Mackenzie and Kayla were really good friends in Cannon Falls. She's a nurse, and she was working somewhere in the state of Minnesota or some large city close to us, you know, as a nurse, because she finished her nurses, her RN, and she moved out to Philadelphia to help with, uh, or Massachusetts, to help with the uh, COVID pandemic out there. Isn't that just incredible? That's yeah, neat. It's it's really cool how these nurses are stepping up, and doctors, and I don't just want to eliminate, eliminate anybody, but anybody in the healthcare field that, you know, on the front lines there, it's just a lot of courage. Just, just amazing. 
So let's see, we're spinning the, getting back to what we were talking about. Yeah, so you, I remember you and mom coming home and you, you had my car, which is a manual transmission. And here you are, you don't have real solid control of your legs at this time. Yet you're driving a stick shift, which was pretty impressive that you made it back there. And you know how difficult it was to see you try and get up the stairs knowing you needed such assistance. And I mean, here you've been a person that's always been taking great care of yourself. You were an all-state, well, not an all-state, but you were a state champion athlete as part of a dance team in Cannon Falls. You were in great shape. I have a tennis player, jogger. You ate holistically, organically. And to see you so debilitated was just a shock. So again, I, I, I fall back on, okay, well, this is just something that, you know, she's going to go in and get fixed and she'll be back to being normal again. Yeah, I I kind of forgot that, like, you hadn't seen me at all. You know, I had already started falling. And you're right. I, I remember telling you, like, man, I... Dad, had I had to drive home next week, like, I don't know, I don't think I could have driven home because I couldn't have been, I, I could push my foot, therefore I could push on the brake and the gas, but I couldn't flex my foot. So instead of lifting my, the pad of my foot up, you know, lifting my toes off the pedals, I had to lift my leg back. You know, I had to pull my leg up off the floor to take it off the, clutch and off the gas so um and you know when I had to break I remember I had to really drive my foot forward it was so weird can you talk about your first moment seeing me and walking up into the house and walking up into the bedroom where did I sleep that night what were your thoughts like can you describe what you saw even though you didn't know it was a big deal can you just describe what that was like well first off I was told by your, by my wife, your mother, that, you know, that you're going to need help getting in the house. So I was ready for that. I remember it being a rainy night. And if you recall, the house that we were living in, the little hobby farmhouse, had three steps getting up, and then you're in a porch. And, um, you know, I was, again, very naive about what you were going through. And we got you in there, and Mom said, no, we need to make a bedroom for her down on the main floor. And our house was an older house with narrow stairway going up and narrow doorways. And did I walk in on my own or did uh, I, I don't, use the railing? I don't remember. I was just kind of in shock to see you not it's being a able to. walker, right? Well, I don't know if you were using a walker then or I don't remember. I just remember. I think I brought a walker home from my work. Yeah, you could have. I just remember how, how different you were. It was like you're not the usual bouncy um athletic test. I was taking it slow. Yeah, and I can't remember what day of the week it was, but we got you home, and then you had an appointment like the next day at Mayo. Um, Tuesday night. And then on Wednesday, you went down. Wednesday morning. So, you know, within, you know, within one week, we found out that you had this thing going on with you. So you went down to the appointment. Oh my gosh, you're right. I... Yes, because mom and I got my diagnosis from my doctor of the MRI at like, like, oh, one o'clock on a Monday because the scan was on Saturday. They called me in at lunchtime and, and wanted me to come in for my results. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is a good sign. And I was probably hopefully feeling a little optimistic too. Like, well, I'm glad they have an answer because I'm sick and tired 
of suffering every night, not getting any sleep. Like, literally, I remember taking three baths a night. And when I mean a night, I mean within the hours I should have been sleeping, I was taking three baths. So once every three hours in my six to eight hour slumber, I was getting up and getting in my bathtub because it was the only thing that, like, soothed me enough to rest. And then I'd get up and I'd work the entire next day. I remember one day I was at work toward the very end of my job. The reason I want to bring this up, Dad, is because when I got diagnosed at lunch, everybody thought I was coming back to work. I was like, see you guys in a couple hours. You know, I said, see you guys. And I loved my staff. They were so great. The people that interviewed me, the nurses I became friends with, my dear office mate, uh, Michael, he was our chaplain. Uh, such good friends and coworkers, and just a family to be a part of. I was so fortunate to work with them for the short three months that I did. But I was taking care of a gentleman who was dying. And I leaned over the bed to put the washcloth on him, on his forehead. A nice cold washcloth. He just had a really high fever and was sweating and said he was so hot. And I remember I was just leaning over, you know, only like five inches from my hip. It was not very far. And my back gave out. And I fell. And I was so glad I had my arms out in front of me because it was no big deal. My elbow actually straddled him and I just brought myself up and said, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, whatever the gentleman's name was. And I said, I just lost my footing there. But I remember telling mom about that. I think that must have happened at like the Tuesday or Wednesday before that MRI. So I had the MRI and then we found out about the tumor and the diagnosis. I called work on the way home and I said, I'm not coming back to work. I'm quitting. And I'm sorry, I have to quit immediately. I have a deadly tumor growing on my spine, and Mayo Clinic's very concerned. Yeah, so you found out with the MRI you had a tumor growing on your back, but we didn't know exactly what kind of tumor it was till you got to Mayo, correct? Yeah, the doctor up at the Alexandria Clinic, and I don't remember his name or even necessarily specifically where I was. It was just very traumatic, obviously. You know, the whole time I felt like, I wasn't being heard. I, I knew that something was wrong in my back. And sure, there, every time I went in, right, and tried the remedies that they said to try, which was hydrocodone for just pain. And then, you know, I did really appreciate the order for physical therapy. And, you know, I'm glad that, you know, the physical therapy didn't work because it moved things along, right, for a diagnosis. But I asked for a scan sooner, so it was just really disappointing to feel myself and see myself degrade and ask for help and not receive it. That was really hard for me. And I remember that doctor, Dad, the one that you're talking about, who gave me the diagnosis, he literally said to me, listen, we found a tumor in your spine, and I don't want you to worry. We're going to take a blood test, and we're going to get you results immediately on that and let you know what the blood tests look like, you know, if you're high in white blood cells or, you know, whatever the methods are for looking at blood work. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's great. But like, what, what's your plan here? Just blood work? Like, are we going to let more days go by? And I remember I said, like, are, is this something I need surgery for, radiation? Like, what's the plan? Like, I was ready for this doctor to have 
you know, maybe at least one or two steps ahead of me, right? I'm just a patient. Yeah, so, <clears throat> I don't know, but I think somewhere along the line... He basically said, oh, we'll just take it out and you'll be fine. Right, and... You'll be walking again. Let me give you a little geography lesson now that I'm a teacher and I... You know, ex-teacher, and I, I, I just have to tell you that we are so... We were so blessed and lucky to be living in the Cannon Falls area because we're only 45 minutes from the Mayo Hospital in Rochester. So, obviously, you know, here we could have gone with this, probably this capable doctor up there, but why not go to the best? So, obviously, the decision was to move you back home to Cannon Falls. You know, it, it's kind of weird that you went in and saw those people, and you're expecting to be back in two hours, and that was the last time you set foot in their doors, pretty much, at uh, Canute Nelson. Anyway, got you to Cannon Falls, um, the little hobby farm outside Cannon Falls, little town called Vesa, or some people pronounce it Vasa, 45 minutes from uh, Rochester. You went down there, and then they did the biopsy. And I just remember being in the room when they came in there, and it's never good to have a sober doctor come into your hospital room to give you bad news, but I think there was like, what, nine of them that came in? It was scary, very scary. And uh, so I'll let you, what, what did he tell you then? I was there, but what did he tell you? Uh, what did the doctor tell me when he came in? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hospitalized. I was admitted. I was in a room. And nine doctors came in. Yeah, they were all in white coats. I mean, they looked very professional. You know, it's like a goddamn herd of superheroes walked into the room. Seriously, I mean, white coats, pristine haircuts, you know, the Mayo Clinic badge. I mean... They all looked prepared, you know, maybe a little nervous, just, you know, I, some of them might have been residents or whatever, but just remarkable doctors. And I remember they came in and they said, you know, Dad, it w was this before or after they did the poke test where they tested my nerve response in my body where they poked me all over with a needle? I think this might have been... You know, this is after, like my dad said, they've received the biopsy. They had drilled a hole into my into my back, into the tumor. They used this giant camera that literally told the doctors exactly where they were poking and how deep they were poking into my tissue. And they took, um, you know, they used a C-arm and they got every angle of that tumor and they were able to go into the center of it and take out some cells and they tested it found out that it was a chondroblastic osteosarcoma. Uh, chondroblastic meant it was a quickly multiplying cell, I think. The chondroblast, you know, is a part in the cell that is responsible for the energy to reproduce, I think, right? Or something. I don't know. It was this crazy cell that was gone, gone rogue in my spine, and he explained that. Um, the reason why it didn't show up in the x-rays that they had done in Alexandria was because it was a soft tissue tumor at that point, and over time it turns into bone, which is why it's called a chondroblastic osteosarcoma. So it's a quickly multiplying malignant, deadly rare bone cancer or tumor that was growing in my spine. That's what they said. Yeah, so I recall, if I'm not mistaken, that within less than a week, 
you were walking to the point where you were given a very... Walker. Well, given a walker, but you're also given choices as far as, you know, what you could do with this situation. And, uh, you know, you made the very courageous choice to maximize your life, and I'll let you talk about that in a second, but it was just a week, a whirlwind thing, and here I am getting back to talking a little bit about me. I kept on having this naivety that, oh, it's all going to work out okay, you know, and that's just something's going to happen, and here we are given this tremendous slap in the face or smash in the face that you have this tumor that's going to take your life. So, you know, everybody listening to this podcast has a family. Everybody listening to this podcast has someone or has had someone they love and care about. What is it like seeing your daughter go through something like that? Was it surreal? When did it become scary? Well, that comes later on in the story. I don't know if I want to jump ahead to that, but, you know, I just remember the choices you had. So I just kind of outlined what Tess was going through, the doctors. I recall there being three choices. Tess said there's just two. Um, First choice was they're going to go in there and aggressively attack the tumor, uh, get in there and basically slice, dice, scrape, try and get the sucker out of there. That was option number one. Option number two was they were going to go in there and continue biopsying the tumor, if I'm not mistaken, doing more tissue sampling and gathering of the tissue, and then bringing that out and testing it and and seeing what kind of chemotherapy would best address um, killing that sucker. The third thing would be that they would go in there and simply remove the tumor. Of course, you all know that backbones and vertebrae are very convoluted messes. So to go in there and try and get it removed by surgery was a long shot, more or less. Very slim chance of them getting everything. And because it's a quick-growing tumor, a very fast-growing tumor, if any little snippet got out into her body, it would spread. So for that reason, Tess was not excited about doing the big, massive scraping and dissecting and removing. The same reason, the minute they tried to do more biopsies, the sac that would hold the tumor would basically be uh, perforated or violated, and a good chance that something could escape from that too. So she said, well, I remember her words real clearly, and excuse me if I start to get a little emotional about it, but she said, well, yeah, I guess I can have the surgery and I'll become a paraplegic. I won't have the use of my legs, but I can still hug my nieces and nephews with my arms, she said. So she boldly said that she was going to go ahead and do the third most radical thing in my mind, which was to go ahead and remove the tumor and successfully remove the tumor. They had to take the surrounding tissue and bone mass with it, which means she'd lose three of her vertebrae. Um, and her spinal cord would be interrupted, which means, of course, that she would become a paraplegic. So within one week, she went from being a walking, happy, 25, 26-year-old woman to making the decision that I'm going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. Yeah. It's all very sad. Yeah. So... It feels good to talk about, though. Yeah. Anyway, um... She became pretty notorious at that point because um, 
when people heard about her courage, she had a lot of people wanting to talk to her, and Rochester Post Bulletin came and did an article on her, and she was still <coughs> um, doing physical therapy there, so. Yeah, that was cool. You know, that was an awful time, but the time that I spent at Mayo Clinic in the rehab department, I want to give a shout out to them because they were incredible. Oncology, orthopedic surgery, um, you know, the physical medicine and rehab and the infectious disease guys and seriously the physical medicine department was just so great I had so much fun in there walking with leg braces and um, it was really a beautiful thing and I thank God for the moments I had to really like enjoy and appreciate my body and what it could do because I had really taken it for granted, you know. Looking back, I, you know, they were preparing me for being in a chair, but I still had to use my legs. So they really worked me hard. Like, they had me doing everything I would be doing later. And even if I couldn't feel my feet or they were weak as hell, Stacy would lean over my legs and, like, lay on them so that I could do my sit-ups, you know. Like, just incredible people every day walking into your room saying, you're tired, you're exhausted, you don't know if you can do this, but I know you can. I'm going to literally help you get dressed and brush your teeth and roll your butt down to PT, but you're going to go to PT. I thank God for everybody there, Dr. Christofferson, everybody on the floor there. Yeah, and again, I just want to come back to how, how, um, proud I am of all the healthcare professionals who put the value of a person's soul and their health above, you know, getting paid or what have you. Granted, you know, doctors make a pretty good salary, but they work hard. And they put their life on the line. And they put their life on the line, and it's like, you know, Gwen knew a bunch of doctors, and sure, they might work regular hours, but they uh, they are responsible for people's lives. They're on call. They work Long, long hours during a week. And during a pandemic, they put their family's health at risk. Yeah, so anyway. For the betterment of all of us. Right. So we've covered that ground. Again, I just just thinking about what Tess said with the people in the physical therapy department. But all the nurses, all the care she got at Mayo. And, of course, it's a world-class organization. It's just top-notch. So, you know, one week, here it is. And, and again, getting back to the point, I'm thinking, like, okay, so there's a tumor in her back. The plan was that they wanted to do the surgery, not soon, but they wanted to start chemotherapy, like, right away. And the reason for that is they wanted to arrest any further growth or um, of the tumor in her body. So they started her right away on chemotherapy, and that was like, boom. And I said, okay, in my brain, I thought, okay, the chemotherapy, the they already have one biopsy. They're going to figure out the proper cocktail, so to speak, to inject in her, and um, and then you know it's going to the chemotherapy is going to knock it down. It's going to stop the swelling. And didn't chemotherapy help your grand help your dad with his lung cancer? Uh, yeah, you know you hear about success stories with chemotherapy. I was optimistic, yes, because again my naivety, naivety, and I just think okay. I've never been faced with any terrible adversarial situations. I think this is going to work out the best. Tess will get this chemotherapy. She'll be 
doing fine. So, you know, we went through this chemotherapy. It was pretty easy for me. Pretty ghost to go up to her um, chemotherapy room and not be allowed to touch anything or uh, any food that she touched or tasted had to be thrown away. Things were carted in these sealed plastic bags. And then to see the actual um, circumstance or situation where she was given this uh, poison. It was poison. Yeah, they, a, they it, were concerned about me getting sick and also me getting you sick because I was fed poison, right? Yep, so having this bag given to her intravenously and yeah. seeing this weird colored stuff going right into her bloodstream. Ugh, it yeah. just just was terrible. And what about my weight gain and my steroid change? So to see see that happen to her was just really, really gross. Yeah, so and I, I, I never had heard of the phrase, or I don't know if I coined it, but it was good poison. It was poison that was put in my daughter's body to kill things, and hopefully it wouldn't kill my daughter, but it would take care of that nasty stuff. So, yeah, so she started to change. What did you do? You took the, the chemotherapy cocktail, and then you took steroids to counteract the, the symptoms of the chemotherapy. So her hair fell out. She be she got to be kind of bloated. Her face took on a lot of extra flesh and her abdomen, and so she physically changed quite a bit. But she um, still had her smile and still had that inner beauty. That well, look, did I lose my energy though? Like, do you, oh yeah. Like I went from walking, talking, feeling energetic, hungry to what? Well, you had very little appetite, and we kept on trying to make you eat, and just you just. Wouldn't eat anything. You take a couple bites of something, that would be enough. And we really tried hard to have you get your nutrients in you. Here's my beautiful daughter, physically changing, and not only just the physical part of her, but like she said, her demeanor. You know, she's a very energetic, as you can tell, a person. Very vivacious, very gregarious. Just loves to talk, loves people. And here she is, just this slouch, laying in a hospital bed, looking sick. I'm going to get some fuel now. <laughs> I wish I could think of a pumping gas song right now. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, that's all, folks. Yeah, so we're uh, fueled up again. We're on the back stretch of the home stretch. We're almost home. So I guess I just want to add these final two thoughts or final few thoughts about the whole thing. You were talking about you were in the bed, and you certainly didn't look like the daughter that I was used to seeing. Just kind of to finish off the thoughts I had seeing Tess in that hospital bed. She was getting infused with chemotherapy. There was a tumor that was in her back, and uh, optimism and prayer and people coming to bat for Tess, cards, letters, phone calls, having a faith that it's all going to work out for the best, you know, God's in control and all this. And in the back of my brain, I'm thinking like, okay, prayers are going to be answered. Tessa's going to walk again. She's going to get out of this mess. And uh, life will be back to normal somewhat. I I do recall one particular instance, which, again, underlines or emphasizes the professional um, level of, of expertise 
doctors everywhere have, and you know, especially Mayo, which is again world renowned. I remember um, still working as a teacher during that time. Now we're well into May and of uh, of that year, and I had to finish off the year teaching, and I had every expectation of continuing to teach. So I drive back and forth um, from my teaching job. I take days off when there was important days or whatever. But um, as Gwen and I are struggling with this whole mess, um, this um, our world being turned upside down, she basically spent 90% of her life in the hospital with Tess. So I can't uh, downplay or underestimate the amount of love that my wife gave my daughter during that time and commitment by being by her side and uh, having a nurse, a medical background, somebody who's well-experienced and numerous things. It was just a, a wonderful thing to have Gwen there. And also it eased my burden to know that you know, I didn't have to be down there the whole time because Tess was in great hands. But I remember Gwen and I walking out. I was heading home then late at night. It was probably 9.30, 10 o'clock, and I was heading back home. I needed to work the next day, and we we're walking down the hallway, and the hallway at Mayo was past visiting hours, and very few people out. It's not during the change of shifts. And I'm walking down the hall, this expansive hallway, and probably a uh, hundred feet in front of me, I see another figure walking toward us, and we're all going to come together at the uh, exit doors. I didn't think much about the person till um, they got close enough, and it was Tess's specialist, Dr. Yuzemski, who had spent innumerable hours with Tess. I remember just greeting him and making a comment to some degree like, well, you're putting in late hours, and you're this man who's been all over the world. He's a he's a a specialist, global specialist in bone surgery and and that whole thing. Michael Yazemski. Yeah, Michael Yazemski is his name. He's been consulted by White House officials, by leaders of other countries. Here, this man is 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 leaving the hospital at like ten or ten fifteen at night. And I find out that he had spent those extra hours going over Tess's x-rays and all these things that she had to, that she had in her file. He was spending this extra amount of time away from his family for my daughter. And uh, even today, I, I just tear up thinking how great hands Tess was in at Mayo. And that ultimately, she'd be fine. Everything would come through and... It would be great because of the care that she was given and my belief that uh, it was all going to work out. Yeah. Yeah, that was really intense. That was a scary few days. Well, Dad, thank you for sharing what it was like for you. And, yeah, it's kind of crazy talking about all of it. You can say that's episode one of Blacktop Billy, couldn't Yeah, you want to do your sign-off there, Blacktop Billy. I don't have a sign-off other than keep your wheels on the road and your hands at 10 and 2. That's all, folks. We'll see you next time on the road with Blacktop Billy. On the road with Blacktop Billy. Don't quit your day job. (laughs) This has been Push Diaries Podcast. 
please visit our website at pushdiariespodcast.com to see our mission and learn more about the guests. This is your podcast too. I want to hear your stories. Email me at pushdiariespodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com forward slash pushdiariespodcast. Thank you for listening.